Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Brian Cooper. Alexi is uh, traveling, so he is un- unavailable for us today, but I've got a replacement interview, as it were, with uh, one of our prospect writing fellows uh, named Luke Goldstein. Um, and we talk about his um, feature length article, a really interesting investigation into this company called Q Cells. Um, which is in Dalton, Georgia. And he spent some time around there reporting, talking to the mayor and talking to workers and whatnot about how the, the, the green transition is going down there in a deep red part of the country. Um, but I won't scoop any of that discussion. Um, but I do want to mention something else before we get to that. I just want to talk a little bit about Elon Musk because I recently read a book about Tesla written by a journalist named uh, Edward Niedermeyer. Um, the book is called Ludicrous, and it's it's good stuff. It's very interesting um, and illustrative and illuminating about Elon as a, you know, personality and as a, a entrepreneur, I guess you'd call him. The, the book is, it's a, you know, a history of the company from about, you know, from its founding in the early 2000s up to about 2019 when the book was published. Um, and the insight for me was uh, that, you know, aside from it being a very, you know, informed uh, discussion of the automobile industry in general, you know, I had always basically thought that Elon Musk was a fraud, and that he took credit for the work of other people. He wasn't really much of an entrepreneur. You know, he was just a, a, a blustering sort of propagandist. Um, and that he didn't really know how to do the stuff that he claimed to do. He, he wasn't nearly the sort of Tony Stark genius that he made himself out to be. And this perspective was confirmed, I thought. The recent Reuters report that... For something like a decade, Tesla has been rigging the range estimation on its its vehicles. The little number that says you've got two hundred and you know forty seven miles or however many that that was deliberately on the personal instructions of Elon Musk exaggerated, telling you you can go further than you really can. And the thought was presumably that the vast majority of trips are not the full range of the vehicle, and so you. You just post this fake number and it, may, it assuages people's range anxiety. And, um, you know, after 50%, then it will start showing you the real number and telling you to go to a supercharger. And people have known about this for a while, but now we have it confirmed that it was deliberately faked on the personal orders of Elon Musk. And the revelation in this book is that I was correct to think that he is, in fact, basically a fraud, at least when it comes to Tesla. You know, this doesn't talk about SpaceX uh, at all, and I don't really know much about that company. Um, but the the argument is that Tesla could not have succeeded without Elon Musk because of the way that his sort of megalomaniac personality and constant uh, lies and exaggerations actually enabled Tesla to grow. See, the thing is, in the auto industry, you know, it's a tough business. Um, You have a huge capital investment. Uh, Every car takes a lot of, you know, steel and other resources. And as time has passed, the, the quality standards have gotten very high. And so the established automakers like Toyota, GM, Ford, Kia, Hyundai, they all have these very rigid um 
bureaucracies. Niedermeyer writes, quote, successful automakers are giant process-driven bureaucracies that rely on rigidly systematized cultures to manage a continent-spanning ballet of manufacturing operations, supply chain, service infrastructure, and regulatory compliance. And that makes it really difficult to uh, for, for a startup company to be able to compete because, you know, you have to build basically a giant factory um, and hire tons of employees. And to be able to amortize the expense of that over, you know, any sort of profit making enterprise, you've got to sell hundreds of thousands of cars. Well, if you're a startup, you know, you can't sell hundreds of thousands of cars, you know, right off the bat. You know, you got to start s- slow, you know, and, and work your way up. And this is why uh, basically every major uh, car startup from the since the 1920s has failed. There's over a thousand of them um, on the Wikipedia entry of failed American uh, auto startups. It's just a really difficult business to break into. And the innovation of Elon Musk was to basically create this cult of personality around by making these ridiculous, exaggerated Silicon Valley brained promises that the you know we're going to deliver all of these crazy new features and he and he created this whole uh sort of cult-like investor community of people that would just buy and buy and buy tesla stock you know promising that it's going to just basically take over the entire car industry uh and uh you know a, a population of loyal customers who would deal with the fact that whenever you know um tesla finally got its started producing large numbers of cars, the cars were low quality. They had many production problems because they did, they were, they were running on a Silicon Valley mindset, move fast, break things. You know, we don't need to deal with all this entrenched bureaucracy. We're, we're going to, we're going to have the genius innovators figure everything out on the fly instead of doing a very boring nitty gritty nuts and bolts, like setting up a giant bureaucracy. That's that, you know, that is not what, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs got into the game. You know, they're, they're, um, as Henry Farrell says in a very interesting post, they, they're, they're more prophets than priests, you know? And so for the first, basically up through 2019, Tesla didn't make any money. It, it, it lost money and all, all but three quarters, uh, that when it posted profitability up through mid 2019, um, it, it didn't, it lost billions. And the reason it didn't go bankrupt is because Tesla or Elon Musk personally could keep going back to venture capitalists and keep selling stock to his uh, gullible Rube fan base and uh, have enough uh, operating money to, um, you know, to, to cover the bills, as well as he got a loan from the Department of Energy in 2010 and uh, got a lot of benefit from uh, basically electric zero emission vehicle credits that you can sell in the, in California, especially. And so that kept, kept the company going. Now, Niedermeyer says that he predicts in his book that Tesla is going to go bankrupt sooner or later, or it's going to be bought by one of the other companies because, you know, you can't keep doing that forever. Eventually people are going to cotton on, um, and you're going to, you can't keep going back to that well of investors and, uh, retail, you know, stock buyers forever. But the weird thing is that starting in, in 2021 and, and especially in 2022 and 2023, in a serious way, Tesla has been making big profits in the billions. They, they had a quarter in 2022 of $3.7 billion. And the reason for that 
uh, you have on the one hand, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, restored the electric vehicle credits for Tesla, which they had previously run through. Um, you know, you could only sell uh, so many under the previous regime. So they got to re-up on that. And then now Musk isn't really running Tesla anymore. There's a Wall Street Journal piece uh, back in May that, that, that reported how the chief financial officer, Zach Kirkhorn, is basically running the company now. And he has not entirely ditched all of Musk's goofy promises trying to make an electric semi-truck. That was a total flop by all accounts. It's a very strange vehicle for Tesla to make. Um, But he's just doing nuts and bolts manufacturing stuff. He's getting down to the basics, Uh, cutting cutting expenses and and just setting up an efficient production process that is very standardized, very systematic, and produce the the cars that, that people still somewhat mysteriously want to buy. Tesla still has a strong brand. And so perhaps Elon Musk buying Twitter and torching his reputation by hanging out with, uh, you know, the worst right wing trolls in the world is actually will actually be what saves the company because he's lost uh, probably, you know, uh, estimates vary, but maybe half of his forty four billion dollars in uh, buying Twitter. And it looks like he's just going to drive it to zero. The last thing I saw him do on there was reinstate the account of somebody who posted one of the most notorious uh, pieces, a screenshot rather, from one of the most notorious pieces of of child torture porn in the history of the Internet. And that is saying something. And so if you're a Tesla stockholder with any sort of sense, you're like, it's time for this guy to go. We need we need somebody else to be running this thing. So who knows what will happen with Tesla? You know, the future's not set in stone. Maybe it will get bought out or go out of business. Who's who's to say? Uh, but I thought it was a very interesting book and worth mentioning because, you know, it, it kind of, uh, you know, it's like, yes, Musk is a kind of a fraud and uh, makes these constant, overheated, ridiculous promises that don't come true. You know, the these wild promises of being able to drive autonomously across the country within, you know, six months that, that are... Uh, have never happened and are not likely to happen. And that kind of thing is why Tesla managed to become a major automaker to sell hundreds of thousands of vehicles because he managed to swindle so many people. But anyway, yeah, uh, just a brief prelude to the episode now. So let's let's get into our interview or my interview with Luke Goldstein right after I mentioned that this podcast is sponsored by the America Prospect magazine. Um, if you Subscribe to our Patreon at $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode every other week. If you subscribe at $10 a month, you'll get a digital subscription to the magazine, as well as a discounted print subscription if you would like it. Other than that, rate, review, send episodes to your friends. And let's get into my interview with Luke Goldstein right now. So, Luke, welcome to the show here. Thanks for coming. Um, Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'll do my best imitation of Alexi's voice. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, we've gotten all kinds of substitutes. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the the reason I wanted to have you on, of course, is to talk about your recent, um, you know, feature length investigation of uh, Dalton, Georgia, um, which is, you know, a place that I suspect a lot of people have uh, never even heard of. And that, uh, including includes myself before I read your article. I mean, maybe I'd like seen it on a map somewhere, but that was about it. Um, so, uh, before we get to like the current, like 
state of things there. Can you tell us a little bit about the the history and the economy of Dalton? You know, what what was it like, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Um, where do people work? So on and so forth. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's the right place to um, to start. Um, so Dalton has for many decades now uh, kind of held the title as the, the carpet capital uh, of the world. Um, so at its at its peak, the golden years, the 80s and 90s, uh, it was producing well over 80 percent of, you know, all the kind of flooring materials um, for, uh, you know, homes and, you know, also some commercial spaces, uh, you know, all throughout the country. Um, and kind of, I guess the interesting origin story here is, you know, Dalton really, uh, you know, hits its boom years on the back of um, the American um, housing boom uh, af- in the in the post-war period. So you have all these, you know, new new homes uh, across the country, the creation of the suburbs, um, and they, you know, need, um, you know, they, they need floorings and such. And so Dalton, just, you know, through certain geographic factors and transportation, and everybody had a textile industry too, was just, you know, well-positioned. Um, to really kind of capitalize on on this moment, um, and then there's a huge kind of consumer demand at, at, at this point in the '80s. People are remodeling; and they really want uh, of you know they really want carpeting. Uh, and uh, you know, certain locals would describe these years to me that just you know you'd have some people who would move from out of town or people who are living there, and everyone was just you know setting up new carpeting shops shops and. Um, you know, you could really sort of strike it rich. Um, and, uh, then I think sort of the next phase, um, in the kind of later nineties is, you know, demand starts to sort of slow, um, carpeting, uh, shrinks and there's a big consolidation, uh, phase. So, you know, all the many smaller shops, uh, that had set up in Dalton start to, you know, kind of coalesce together into, you know, the big three giants. Uh, the main two are Shaw and, uh, Mohawk. Um, and then there's this additional phase that comes later in the kind of, you know, ongoing kind of decline of, of the industry, um, where, you know, they begin to sort of financialize, um, Shaw gets bought out by, um, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and they're now all, you know, sort of big publicly, you know, traded, uh, companies. Um, and that's sort of what brings us to today. Yeah. Yeah. And the one last piece of it, I mean, so in the nineties, right, the, um, carpeting just becomes less popular, right? Like I remember when my dad, uh, built a house when he first moved to Colorado in, uh, 1995, that had a bunch of wall to wall carpeting in the room. So when he built another house, um, in 2002, that didn't have wall-to-wall carpeting anywhere. It just had throw rugs. And so it's like the, right. it was, you know, for sort of mysterious reasons, I'm not sure exactly why people just sort of stopped liking wall-to-wall carpeting. Um, yeah. But yeah, then you had, you know, the housing boom in the mid-2000s, but then the housing bust. And, you know, basically, yeah, investment in, in residential construction fell to the like lowest point ever recorded. And it stayed that way for like like eight years or something. So that, that's a, another piece of context. So now, exactly. Yeah. Now you can tell us, maybe get a, 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 give us a breakdown of the basic situation with like the focus of your article in a business sense, uh, which is, which is Q cells. 
what what's what does this company do? Where do they come from? And what sort of an operation have they set up there in Dalton? Right. So, okay, just to, I think to set this up uh, a bit, though, I'm going to just step back. So, you know, the big conversation in, you know, Washington political circles right now is, is all about the, the implementation, right, of, um, you know, the Biden industrial policy, Bidenomics, uh, whatever people want to call it. And, you know, those main bills are the Inflation Reduction Act. That's going to be the critical one here for my story and for, for Q-Cells' uh, uh, expansion and growth, but, you know, also CHIPS and the infrastructure bill. Um, and, you know, the administration is trying to sell these these bills uh, right now to try and, you know, bolster um, Biden's, you know, re-election uh, bid that's, you know, going to really start ramping up. Yeah. Um, but they have this big problem, uh, obviously, at the moment, which is that, uh, you know, despite these legislative achievements and, you know, these uh, economic gains, at least it, it's not uh, showing up yet in the, uh, in the approval ratings, uh, for, for the president. There's clearly this kind of, um, you know, a cer- certain dissonance that they're, they're trying to, uh, resolve. And there are a lot of different factors for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, hang on. Of course. I, w- I want to get yeah. to that. But, but before we get t- too far out onto the, the politics of it, let, uh, just, just tell us what the, um, so people know the context that is the, the background, what this Q cells thing, like I, I think I had heard of it a couple of times, but I, a lot of listeners probably don't know what the business is. So, sure. so give us that foundation first. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a solar panel uh, maker, um, yeah. and it's uh, South Korean owned, um, and it's uh, you know rapidly uh, expanding and expand, expanded in the last several years, um, and has been also a huge booster, I, I would say, or has you know celebrated the the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, cause it's sort of given them the, the market assurances to, um, you know, really starting, start to kind of put capital down to expand. So in Georgia, they're trying to build out at least a major portion of their supply chain. So solar panel, the, the finished solar panels are all assembled at this plant in Dalton, which did open up originally in 2019, but has since, you know, it's doubled and expanded the number of jobs, uh, once, the new construction underway is finished. They're opening up a whole new facility just down the road, also in Cartersville, which is a few towns over. Um, so the the two big things, I guess, about Q cells is they're uh, they're very uh, excited to tell people about you know reshoring their whole supply chain in, mainly to to the U.S. That's their ambition, um, and also sort of you know vertically integrating. So they want to do everything from. Uh, the silicon wafers all the way to the, the finished, uh, solar uh, panels. And it's all for commercial and for, uh, residential, uh, use. Um, so they've struck two, you know, giant kind of historic, uh, uh, orders for panels, um, just in the last past year. The most recent one was with, uh, Summit Ridge. Right. Yeah. So, so you have this company that, um, yeah, it's the 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 biggest solar panel manufacturer in the United States now. Over the next decade, it's projected to be. Yeah, it could be making upwards of thirty percent of of all uh, commercial and residential. Right. So a huge player, and and its expansion is dependent on the federal legislation passed, uh, you know, through Congress in the last couple of years and signed by President Biden. 
um, you know, principally, I think the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, massive tax credits for solar panels, especially, you know, and that's going to drive demand enormously. You know, it's like r- people probably uh, may not even know this today. You get, you know, you you buy a set of panels, you know, that could zero out your electricity bill if you live in the right place and the government will pay for 30 percent of that. Um, so huge subsidy. Um, and so. Uh, yet, I think, yeah, now this maybe is the point to, to sort of get into the politics a little bit. Uh, you know, so so tell us about the the political um, the political context of of Georgia uh, and this like this particular region. Um, uh, we didn't mention what uh, who represents the city in Congress. Um, and maybe you could sort of start there. Um, sure. Yeah, so it's it's a deep red part of uh, north north uh, northwest Georgia, um, just across the border from from Tennessee, and it's it's representative is is uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. They've there's kind of a joke in town that you know they've gone from the carpet capital of the world, and now they're kind of best known for their representative, um, uh, you know, far right congresswoman who I guess is trying to fight Lauren Boebert now. I suppose that's the most recent uh, <laughs> development with her. Um, yeah, I mean, it. the story, I guess, more broadly of what's going on here is this kind of supposed you know, kind of contradiction or like a political inconvenience, uh, which is that in the implementation uh, or the development of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, a lot of the employers uh, who are setting up shop or taking the credits are going to red states. Um, and Georgia um, has been, you know, one of the top beneficiaries. Um, Brian Kemp has made this very kind of aggressive stand to, to use, uh, state tax subsidies on top of the federal ones to try and, uh, woo and, and bring a lot of these clean tech, uh, employers, uh, to the state. Um, and that's sort of the story with QCells's new expansion. Um, they originally got a bunch of property tax breaks and, you know, now we're using federal ones to, to, um, expand it, uh, to expand out, um, and, you know, this is the whole kind of challenge of like, how are these, how are the politics going to work out? You have all these representatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene is a good example who are actively hostile to the Inflation Reduction Act when it was being passed. Uh, but now they're, you know, reaping the rewards and, you know, receiving all the jobs and investment. Yeah. It's, you know, it strikes me as an, a, a somewhat of a throwback. Um, to how sort of basically like pork barrel politics uh, used to work in a in a previous more bipartisan age, um, you know, back in the day before like the parties were really strictly ideologically aligned, you know, with uh, military stuff. I mean, the military still kind of works like this, but like well, f- federal water projects were the big one for many years, um, where basically you had this program to basically. Uh, divert all this federal investment all over the place to like practically every you know congressional district in the country, and then the 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 members of Congress could you know go to their constituents and be like, "Look, I voted for this thing that brought all this jobs and infrastructure that's useful." Um, and you know a lot of those projects were kind of terrible, but that was sort of like especially late in the game too, because they sort of ran out of stuff to do. So Mark Reisner's book, Cadillac Desert is very good on this, but you know, that was like the, the, the political economy basically of this. Um, and as, but as you said, you know, just despite the fact that like red States, uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene's, um, district there, you know, stood to benefit enormously. 
from the bill and now are benefiting uh, tremendously from it. Um, you know, they all voted against the bill. And one of the core demands uh, during the first rounds of the debt ceiling negotiations was, you know, Republicans were going to try to zero out all these tax credits. Um, you know, that was eventually dropped, but that was like one of their first, you know, in their ransom note that they passed, you know, to Biden saying that we need to get rid of these tax credits for, you know, whatever reason. Um, and so at the same time, though, you have Kemp, you know, like loudly taking credit for jobs, you know, and stuff. And I mean, he wasn't in Congress, so I guess you can't blame him for, you know, not voting. But uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, also kind of taking credit, right? Like she's shown up to some of these things and like sort of praised the the project, right? So, yeah. So like, do, do you, I mean, on the one hand, I guess you have the sort of like national culture war craziness that like you, you're, we got to get rid of the IRA because it's Biden, Democrats, bad, boogity, boogity, Jewish space lasers. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this much more sort of materialist idea that, you know, this, this is jobs and, and benefits for the constituents. And so we basically need to support it because like that's how, you know, I'm going to, you know, our sort of like political operation is going to sort of proceed from now on. Which one of those factors do you think is is sort of predominating? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a really mixed picture. But Dalton is a I think a good case study, at least to to follow for how this develops. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the and just another whatever, like point to bring in here is that I guess. This past week, uh, you know, Trump in his, uh, you know, in his presidential bid is also coming out with a plan that he now wants to scrap the the, the tax um, the tax credits from the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Um, so that's another. I think that the way it's going to pan out is probably, you know, at the more national level, you're going to see more Republicans uh, take this kind of aggressive stance to just, you know, roll back whatever. Biden has done because that just sort of plays better. But probably more locally, I think you are going to have stakeholders within the GOP coalition and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, is kind of included in this who are going to be much more uh, resistant because they have, you know, the jobs in their in their backyard. And you do see this um, even more locally uh, in Dalton. So I spoke to a lot of local officials and county officials and none of them really agree also on what what is to be done what the kind of local stance should be towards the you know big new employer QSOS, by the way is the fourth largest now in 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 the the broader local area in the county just behind carpeting um so the mayor uh david pennington is kind of much more hostile um to the the clean tech um, explosion that's happening in, in the state. Um, but the county, uh, is, you know, on board with it. They are the ones who kind of did the original negotiations with Q cells to bring them, you know, to Dalton and dealt with the state. Um, and I think they the county's approach is very much sort of like Brian Kemp's, which is they're, uh, totally, you know, agnostic basically about the, the climate change decarbonization project, but they just, you know, look at it as jobs. It's just, a lot more kind of pragmatic, um, for them. Like, you know, uh, the County, you know, chair basically said to me, like, we don't want the jobs to go to California. So why, you know, why, 
you know, why shouldn't it be us, uh, uh, more or less? And they gave them a big um, tax break, right? The county did. Yeah. On the, yeah. On the property taxes. Yeah. So, it, you know, they have to kind of defend that also. But my only point is my takeaway from this, um, was that I just, I think there's a, as much as there's a political inconvenience, I think also for Democrats, there is one that's emerging for Republicans that this is going to be a, a, a rift, uh, just, based on, you know, what the political interests and who the stakeholders are that you, um, you know, have to kind of represent here. Yeah, you could certainly, you know, I mean, you sort of see this happening in Texas, like both both sides of the, you know, debate, like like the the the, the push and pull of, of uh, political economy back and forth or, or just, you know, sort of like what the Republican Party wants to do, because like Texas has become a major, I think the biggest wind producer in the country. And for a long time, it was super easy because it was like low regulations. Nobody gives a crap about anything but money. So you just throw the windmills up right next to the oil derricks, free money, baby. And like, you know, right. But then it's gotten sucked into the culture war thing, even though Texas now depends on solar and wind to uh, prevent the grid from collapsing when it's a uh, hundred billion degrees in, in, in Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston. Um, you know, there's this movement to scale back some of the, uh, you know, subsidies and regulatory stuff that's enabled that wind, uh, the, the power, the growth of wind in Texas, um, and solar too. Uh, so I guess the other aspect of this that, that is, interesting is you know with the democratic party your your article gets into this a little bit you know georgia unlike texas is a swing state and so you could imagine you know biden you know going to to pitch uh you know georgia voters on saying it's like look look at all the jobs that you know this legislation i passed on a party line vote have brought to georgia so vote for me so you can keep having the jobs because republicans are going to take them away and from your reporting it seems like that is totally not happening at all uh <laughs> at least in dalton um you right. know and and so can you talk a little bit about that and maybe why it's it's uh ha- happening yeah i i think that um so more 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 or less the the idea is that the na- you know national democrats are the ones who are making the the push here um to really try and sell Qsells's expansion as you know a a victory delivered by uh the Biden administration but um you don't hear quite the same thing from uh local officials uh so what you get from local officials though is it, it it's more or less what you'll hear just from people in town which is that everyone knows Qsells they like the jobs, but no one associates it yet as a a government program. Um, and I think part of this is it kind of has to do with the tax credits. You know, uh, people just don't make the the connection in the same way of a company taking tax write offs as you know the government you know ha- having an active involvement uh, in, in you know these policies that are benefiting their their lives. Um, so uh, you know, and local officials also just have a different kind of set of interests or, you know, there's political confinements on what they can do versus nationally. Um, you know, they're dealing with a really deep red area. And I, I, I think that, you know, they believe that the jobs that are being created at Q cells are not, uh, quite good enough yet to, to totally, um, at least to kind of stop, stop the project here. You know, the, the jobs are higher than carpeting, which is why carpeting is really mad about, 
uh, <laughs> about Q cells coming into town. That's a, it's a huge, uh, kind of, you know, war or rift that, uh, is, is going on in, in the area between, uh, King Carpet and, and the new clean tech employer. Um, so the job, the jobs do pay somewhat higher, which is why a lot of people are moving from carpeting to Q cells. But, you know, I mean, they're not, obviously they're not union jobs and, you know, they're not dramatically that much, uh, uh, better. There's a long training process. So there's just a huge amount of churn in, in the workforce, um, at the moment. I think that local democratic officials, their sense is that those jobs are going to have to get better and there should be more investment into skills training, job training, um, so that, uh, people in town can actually, you know, kind of, scale up for, for higher end positions. And I should also mention that one challenge Dalton faces, though it's not just Dalton's that they have a really low higher education rate, um, in that, in that County It's one, it's consistently been one of the lowest in the state. So that's kind of what I think has held back them being able to, you know, just have qualified positions for, um, higher skilled, uh, uh, jobs. Yeah. Keep- and I think that's a lesson. That's a lesson that could, you know, probably just, I think also be taken by, by national Democrats. Yeah, Q cells is they brought in a lot of uh, South Koreans, right? To to run the more like presumably better paying, higher skilled, more technically challenging stuff, right? Yeah, um, at least temporarily. Um, and again, it's the problem is that it's harder to hire people locally for some of those uh, skilled positions just yeah. because there aren't that many people who are qualified. And I think that's a legitimate challenge, and there is a conflict between the town. And the employer, I, I would say that's the sense I've gotten from my reporting. Um, QCell seems, uh, willing to, or, you know, at least the, their plans are to hire locally within, within the state. Um, and I think the county, the town would probably like that to speed up, uh, somewhat quicker, but, um, it's definitely a, an emerging tension that's, that's happening locally there. You said you write in your article that, that, Q cells, they could get even more tax credits, uh, if they met certain wage and apprenticeship requirements that are in the IRA, but they have not done that. Um, well, yeah, that's for the construction, uh, uh, just to be clear for, for the new site in, in Dalton and then also the one in Cartersville. Um, so the way the IRA is structured is you get additional, yeah, you get, you get additional credits, as you said, for, uh, paying prevailing wages and also for apprenticeships. An easy way that you can guarantee that is by signing what are called project labor agreements with a building trades group in the area, which QCells has not done. I s- spoke with um, the North Georgia building trades group that would be handling this, and they were actually invited to come to the uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris's visit to the site um, when they announced the new expansion and the business manager declined an invitation because, um, you know, uh, more or less his view is that the Q cells hasn't been all that helpful for them. And, you know, he doesn't want to kind of act like everything's fine. Um, so, you know, that's one challenge. I will say though, that all the workers I spoke to in uh, the parking lots on site said that, you know, the wages have been a lot higher um, than other projects that they've worked on, but, sort of mirroring some of the tensions of inside the the plan itself of the workers who are being you know brought from South Korea all the contractors on the expansion are from out of state and they're all bringing you know workers from outside of Georgia again just you know despite the fact that the company is receiving you know taxpayer subsidies from from the state yeah i mean a big 
I guess a big question when it comes to the sort of like green transition political economy uh, has to do with with unions. You know, you would think this could be like a sort of logical um, approach that would solve a lot of these issues. Uh, you know, the the jobs are good, as you say, relative to working in a carpet factory, which I imagine kind of sucks. Um, yeah. The uh, but you know, like th- that's happening in the context of like extremely low unemployment, uh, re- really high wage gains at the like the bottom of the scale. And it's it's hard to hard to say whether that's going to hold, you know, if we like have a recession, you know, and inequality goes up again, you know, and you have like declining wages thanks to competition for, from unemployed people and so on. Uh, but if you were to lock in a union contract, you know, that you could sort of stick those, make them good jobs, you know, and and, and probably safer, uh, you know, and all the all the other attendant benefits that come with unionization. But that. Uh, it seems like, you know, Biden has expressed a lot of pro-union sentiment, um, probably more than any president ever, maybe, you know, like like he's spoken out in ways that even FDR never did about, uh, you know, unionization. Um, but American labor law is so feeble and the political context in red states especially is so terrible for unions that it makes it really difficult to organize these um, places. And it seems like, you know, you, you talk to the local democratic party, dude, what, what's his name? Por Porquoy. Yeah. Jean Porquoy is Belgian. Yeah. And, and he did, didn't, it didn't even seem to occur to him that that was like, no, we need to do a union drive at this factory, you know, and like, that's going to make the jobs better and, you know, spread the benefits out to the community in a, in a egalitarian fashion. Um, so I don't know, like, uh, do you think that the that the idea of 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 seizing on this opportunity of massive manufacturing investment to like build out the labor movement is that just like uh you know dead in the cradle or is there an opportunity there? Yeah. I mean, I think I think the simple answer is it's just it's there's such low union density in this especially in this part of the state um that uh it's just really difficult to organize these kinds of drives. Um, there's just not as much, you know, of a, of a footprint, you know, or institutional memory. And I think that's probably partially why it's just not something that's brought up by democratic officials though. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I, they're not opposed to it. It's just not exactly something on the political horizons. Um, I, so I guess one thing to bring up here, you know, is that, so carpeting, uh, has never been, the, the carpeting mills have never been unionized. Um, yeah. There were several drives decades ago that that all got all got crushed. Um, and as is the case in a lot of red right to work states, you would get, you know, local officials and even politicians at the state level who would you know really go to the mat um, to to uh, uh, knock down the, those union drives for, for their big employers uh, in those districts. But uh, the one sort of major labor change in, in Dalton that we should probably get into here is so the jobs at the carpeting mills were never unionized, but when carpeting was doing well, they were pretty good jobs that would, you know, give you at least, you know, some kind of pathway into, you know, more or less a, you know, middle-class life. When the industry starts to slow down in the later nineties, you know, carpeting, the carpeting barons kind of see the writing on the wall, 
right? More or less. And they decide that they're one way that they're going to try and get out of this is to try and shortchange, uh, shortchange labor. Um, and what they do is they start turning to temp agencies, uh, for employment and temp agencies heavily recruit, uh, you know, uh, Latinos, uh, and, and immigrants to come to Dalton to work in these mills, you know, more or less kind of to exploit them to try and, you know, push down wages for, for all the other workers. Um, but this has had a huge demographic impact on, the, on the area. So it's now, Dalton is now 50%, over 50% Latino. And a lot of the younger Latinos that I spoke to, you know, their parents are the ones who came a generation ago to Dalton to work in the carpeting mills. And, you know, they have very negative views by and large about working and carpeting. That's, you know, it's not something that, that they, they want to uh, end up in. Um, uh, and so a lot of them are trying to work at, um, at Q cells. And again, all, all the same things I've listed though of, you know, workforce churn and such, um, are still, you know, applicable. But I think it is one major opportunity, um, to try and, uh, you know, sell the local area, I think on, on, you know, on, on Q cells, um, the Latinos in the area are mostly politically independent. Many of them, you know, just, they don't, they don't vote that often. They've just never really seen a reason to participate in politics. Um, but it's a huge kind of untapped, uh, like political constituency in, in the area. And you'll hear local democratic officials, I think, bring this up more so in terms of the, the, the labor story of, of the area. I mean, there's uh, this question of like policy design, right? Like you have a bill which is named in a deliberately misleading fashion, (laughs) Inflation Reduction Act, you know, which uh, doesn't really, I mean, you could sort of draw a kind of tendentious connection to inflation, even though ironically, right after it passed, inflation started coming down quite fast. Um, but you know, it's a big investment bill. It's about, it's about green investment and green jobs. It's not about inflation really at all. Um, except, you know, sort of incidentally, uh, and you know, you, you could compare that to the way that they did like the new, new deal programs, civilian conservation Corps, works progress administration, you know, we're building big public investments. And then, uh, when they would, you know, you could still see these are new deal projects that are still in use. Tens of thousands of them all around the country. You build like a post office and it would have a big old plaque on the side of it that would say like, you know, Works Progress Administration, you know, Eagle and stars on it and stuff. Um, I remember yeah. uh, posters that were it was like when they first set up Social Security, it was like a, a picture of the Capitol building with a hand coming down with a check on it. You know, it's like, here's your government money. Um, very blatant, very blatantly trying to take credit for things. Uh, in a way that this, you know, bill for understandable reasons, you know, it's like that this was like their last ditch attempt to get something out of mansion. Um, it just wasn't designed that way. Uh, as you say, you know, it's very submerged state, um, as Suzanne Mettler calls it through the tax code, sort of semi intentionally invisible. Um, you know, and that you really can't do anything about that part of it right now. But what you could do is is messaging. You know, you could do a, a propaganda, I guess, basically. It's just some kind of effort to, like, convince people that, like, here's a thing that's happening. You know, look, we spent all this money and the jobs are coming. Like, the the, the damn company owner will tell you that that's, that's why we're building this factory. Um, 
And, you know, there's there's also, as you say, like a, a news desert, you know, classic small town thing where all, almost all of the local papers have dried up. There's like one legacy thing, which I'm sure is much, much worse than it was 20 years ago, probably laid off 80 percent of their staff. And it's mostly like AP, you know, reprints and whatnot. So, you know, do you do you think that, uh, you know, a, a messaging um, outreach, I don't know, with like advertisements or you know, I don't know, people going door to door with pamphlets or something could could convince people, those Latinos you were talking about, you know, who maybe, you know, just haven't even heard of the Inflation Reduction Act at all. Um, do you think that would bear any fruit? Right. Yeah, I think that's I mean, I think that's the main I think that's the main question. So I mean, in terms of in terms of the news desert again. So. Uh, the, the guy we've discussed, John Porquois, was a spokesperson for the local Democratic Party. So he mentioned that the party has, um, they've put out ma- not just mailers, but also run a whole kind of, you know, ad campaign targeted locally about a huge lawsuit. And this is kind of the big news in the area right now. Uh, Dalton is kind of, uh, under fire. Um, uh, they just lost a big case that the town of Rome nearby brought against them. Uh, for chemical spills into the local water. And that's from carpeting. Uh, for, for decades, carpeting was putting PFAS, was dumping PFAS chemicals from their operations into the uh, local river, you know, it's flowing down the local areas. And there could be other lawsuits, right? So the party took this as, uh, you know, basically an opportunity to kind of, you know, stick it to, you know, Republican officials who've run the town. And so they ran a giant campaign. And um, I asked them, you know, would you consider doing something like this, you know, for the Q-Cells expansion, right, to try and, you know, get out the word about the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and, you know, I think, it, again, just speaks to the kind of local pessimism about this. It's just not something that's really on the table that they would think about. But, you know, if it's not going to be done locally, I suppose that's one avenue that you could kind of pursue, you know, if you're John Ossoff or, or um, Raphael Warnock um, to, you know, try and, uh, kind of at least, you know, just make the connection for people as a story of, you know, Q-Cell's new employer and, you know, it, their expansion on the back of, you know, these credits delivered by um, the Biden administration. I think that's one avenue. I mean, President Biden said that he's going to actually go and visit um, the area, I believe, in, in August. So I think they're trying to to really ramp this up and do everything, everything that they can. Again, I think the view locally um, and Latino outreach is definitely part of this. Um, I think the view is that there just is going to have to be, um, there's going to have to be additional measures and moves to, uh, you know, try and invest in skills training or, you know, other ways to bring up wages. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. I, I, I could understand how people get so pessimistic, you know, it's like literally a lady who, was a few years ago chasing school shooting survivors down the street yelling about how Sandy Hook was a false flag and how she has a gun. Uh, that's now their representative. And it's like, what do you even do with that? Um, right. But, you know, the story of the Trump, you know, years is that, like, Democrats went from losing uh rural counties to getting absolutely blown out of the water in them losing like 80 you know points 90 points even um 
And I feel like, a, you know, if, if you're looking at a statewide strategy for, for a Senate election or for a national election in 2024, that's going to be critical to just like keep your margins of loss down. You know, if you, if you, if you win 10 points in, um, a better margin in, in Dalton, uh, in the surrounding regions, you know, you're not going to win those <laughs> congressional seats, but you might win the state. Um, but I imagine it's hard, it's hard to get like local Democrats to sort of like sign off on, you know, just sort of throw your hands up. Um, yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really good point. I mean, uh, you know, I, you want to talk to local officials to know what's happening on the ground, of course, but you know, they're just dealing in a totally different political terrain, uh, than you are statewide or obviously nationally, you know, a lot of local officials, they feel like, uh, even though, you know, to us nationally, like, you know, what's the political machine that Stacey Abrams has built in that state has been wildly successful, of course. You know, I think there's still this sense that in rural areas, they're just kind of out of step with um, the party, as they call them, Atlanta Democrats. And it's just a whole different, you know, political reality um, out, out there. Yeah. Um. Well, that's all the questions I had. Do you have any more uh, closing comments you want to make before I let you go, Luke? Um, ah, I think I think that's we just about covered it. Yeah, this was great, though. Excellent. Well, we will link to your article at the American Prospect. It is called "Green Industrial Policy in Deep Red Georgia." In the former, yeah, that's right. In the former carpet capital of the world, a solar manufacturing boom is taking hold. Will conservative residents credit Biden's industrial policy? And it seems like the answer, as in so many political questions, is uh, maybe it depends. So yet to be seen. I'm glad that we could sort that question out for all time. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you in the next episode.